Good. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I actually just got back uh, from a trip to Israel and just want to tell you some stories about that and then also um, just talk about, uh, I guess, just uh, the search for truth and, and at least, at least one, one way to go about it. Um, so this trip was filled with so much siyata de shamaya, so much... Um, kind of uh, heavenly help and you just Hashem just just really showing his guidance in, in, in so many different ways and and I just want to just share some of the the events uh, with you probably maybe just to start with um, uh, just landing in Israel that's always a big moment for me anyway which is when the, the the plane touches down actually on the ground you know it's always in a an emotional moment and I, I had a, a, a chumash, not not a whole one, but um, one of the the Rashi booklets that just has a, a, a few parshas at a time, and I had that in in front of me. And uh, I don't do this that often, but but I guess every once in a while I do. And so when the when the plane touched down, this is the part I don't do that often. I I just sort of like just felt like ah. This uh, big moment, just Hashem, just send me. I'm just going to open up the chumash to a, a a phrase. Just send me, uh, just send me, just something for me right now. And I, I opened it up right to this one pasuk, just like clearly, just I think it was the only pasuk on the page, the only verse on the page, which was um, which read, uh, it's in Parshas Yisro. Um, you, you have seen what I've done to the Egyptians with your own eyes and how I brought you close to me on eagles' wings. Which is, you know, I mean, everyone says today that that, that, that Pusik is referring to airplanes, you know, eagles' wings, you know, and it's just, uh, it was just amazing to me that in all of Tanakh, basically, at that one moment, if there was one passage that sort of like, just describe that one moment better. I, I, I can't think of one, you know? And I was, I was so moved by that. And it just felt like uh, just, just this moment of real closeness. And then at the end of the trip, at the end of the trip, I was having a coffee, some breakfast with my, uh, my great friend, uh, Rabbi Shlomo Katz. And um, I, I had wanted to go to his class uh, the previous night, Monday night, this was, I guess, Tuesday morning. And I wasn't able to make it. And I asked him, I said, what, 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 what were you teaching? And so, so now it's the beginning of the next week. So that's Parsha's Mishpatim. That's next week's Parsha. I said, can you just give me over something that you had said? And he said, well, you know, normally speaking, I always do Parsha's Mishpatim, but, you know, meaning the next week's Parsha. But this week, I just had to stay in Parshas Yisro, the previous one, because there was one teaching that I just, I couldn't get past. I had to give it over from the Ishbitzer, which was um, this one Pasuk on how Hashem has brought us close to him on eagle's wings. <laughs> and I was like, wow, you know. I said, tell me what the teaching is, but I'll tell you later why that's very meaningful to me. <laughs> and... He said something very beautiful. Uh, 
And maybe we'll, we'll try to get more into it a little bit later. He just kind of gave it over the uh, kitzer, as they say, just, uh, just, uh, just in a nutshell. But, but the idea being that, um, that the eagle is, is the bird that flies the highest in the sky. And it's, it's just, it's a different level of flight. In other words, the Ishpitzer is pointing out that if Hashem is singling out the eagle, he could have said on bird's wings, on the wings of birds. But all birds fly. The, the eagle is unique in that it flies above all of the other birds. So, as I understood it, what the Ishpitzer was saying is that what Hashem is, is, is telling us is that He's going to reveal to us, in terms of bringing us close and comparing that closeness to eagle's wings, a quantumly higher level of understanding. That's what it means by comparing it to the eagle, which is the highest of all of the birds. And that's, I think, a very, very meaningful, a very meaningful teaching for for us, because one of the um, one of the kind of unfortunate uh, uh, aspects of being in exile is that we forget that there's anything other than what we have right now. In other words, we, we, we think that... See, exile means that you're divorced from a greater reality. Exile means that you're divorced from, from where your home really is. But if you live in exile long enough, you think that this outer terrain actually is home. And you think that th- this is what there is. And you begin to lose touch with what, what home actually is. So there are quantumly greater revelations of truth, of, 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 of existence, of, of infinity, if you will, of, of, of what the true nature of, of existence and creation is all about. And we've become so ensconced in this very small dimension of it. And so Hashem is promising us to bring us close on eagle's wings, meaning to say, to reacquaint us with this higher aspect, with these, with these greater levels that we're no longer in touch with. Not yet, anyway. Not yet. So, so there were so many other things. Um, and I'm going to get back to that, I hope, and, and develop that idea more. But just want to tell you some more stories. Um, uh, I had uh, this one experience where it was really, it was really crazy. You know, I went up to Sfat the, the day I got up there, or the next day, um, and I went into the the Ari's mikvah, which which I had been in before, but but. Uh, I'm happy to report to you that it's still really cold. <laughs> you know, it's, it has not gotten any warmer over these years. It is really cold. And um, I learned from, from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Baal Shem Tov that, that his, the, the Baal Shem Tov's uh, minute, his custom was to dunk seven times. So ever since I heard that, I thought, okay, so I'll go seven times when I go to the mikveh. But uh, I... I, I couldn't even get into that 
I, I, it was very hard for me to get in, and I was good for one, and I was out. You know, I was, I could, I was, it was freezing. So, Erev Shabbos, a few days later, uh, I wanted to go to the mikveh, and I was in uh, Yerushalayim, and I didn't know where's the closest mikveh to where I was staying. And so, um, I, I saw a cab driver who was wearing a yarmulke, and I thought, oh, okay, he's probably good to ask because he probably knows the area pretty well. And he recommended something by Shmuel Hanavi, that's the name of a street. I didn't know where that was. And then uh, the light turned green and he went off. And so then I saw another cab driver who wasn't wearing a yarmulke, and I asked him, where's the closest mikveh? And he told me there was one by King George. And so I was asking him, I said, well, someone else was recommending one by Shmuel Hanavi. Which one would you prefer? Which one do you think is better? And he said, well, the one by King George is probably a little bit closer. The one by Shmuel Hanavi, uh, that, uh, that is probably just a little bit further. Which one is better for you? You know what? I'm not Jewish. I really can't give you any more information. <laughs> so I was like, okay, good enough. I got into the guy. I said, take me to the one by Shmuel Hanavi. So that I didn't realize was, was, was deep in uh, Me'asharim. And I think it's called the Dushinsky Mikveh. So it's one of the larger mikvehs in, in Me'asharim. By the way, I just want to say one thing about Me'asharim. I went to get, I've, I've had the same talus and tefillin bag for, um, I don't know, for over 20 years. And it's ripped. It's just, the, the tefillin bag is ripped, the talus bag is ripped, and I've been waiting to get a new one. And so, so I was waiting till I got to Israel because I figured there's the best selection there. So I went into Meir Sharim and I went into a, a place that has a very nice selection and I was talking to one of the guys there. He works in the store and, um, you, know, you know, he's asking me where I'm from and this and that. And, and anyway, so he says he's been to L.A. and, and he, w- he was in Pico Robertson and then I, I asked him if he davened at the Happy Minion and he said, no. He said... But the Happy Minion, he said, I wanted to go so much to the Happy Minion. And then he yells across the store to someone behind the counter and he says, he's from the Happy Minion. And the guy behind the counter says, Happy Minion, Happy Minion. And I was like amazed actually by the fact that they knew the Happy Minion so well, like in the middle of Mayor Sharm, you know. And, and the, the guy then says to me, the guy then explains to me, he's explaining to me, why the Happy Minion is so special. Okay, now he hasn't even been there. All right, and he says, because that's a place where all Jews come together. From all backgrounds, they all come together there. Can you imagine? I asked him for a discount. He said, no. (laughs) So, anyway, it was a beautiful thing. And in that store later on, they have a mincha in that store. We have a mincha later on. So, so anyway, so they, they take me to this, this, this cabbie is taking me to this mikvah in Meishar, and he didn't know where it was, and it was kind of deeper in the, kind of the, the labyrinth of Meishar, so there's no real cars on the street where that is, but so we're, but we're close by, and we knew where we were close, because we saw a Hasidim walking down the street carrying towels, so we thought, okay, that's a good sign, you know. So, so he, he, he calls over to, to uh, one of the Hasidim and says in Hebrew that, you know, says, basically, take care of my friend, you know, take him to the mikveh, because it wasn't clear where it was. 
um, from, from, from where we were in the car. And uh, the guy says, yeah, and he was very friendly. And he was a Slonim or Chassid and spoke great English and was probably in his 20s. And, uh, and I learned a big, big lesson from this. Um, he, he walked me around the corner. It was, we, were, we were close by, but you kind of had to know where to turn exactly. And at that moment, I was a little bit uncomfortable because I just didn't know where I was going, you know. And he helped me. And, uh, and he actually changed my mood because he had been very friendly and I was feeling anxious and then I wasn't feeling anxious. And I thought to myself, you know, it gave me uh, an insight into something. And this is, I'm sharing this for, 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 for all of us, just that we should all be aware of this. See, now look, I've been going to the mikvah for a long time. So you say, well, what's the big deal? You're going to the mikvah. Why were you uncomfortable? I was uncomfortable because I just didn't know where it was. And I was in a different place. So I, my, my bearings were off. That, that's why I was uncomfortable. And he reassured me and took care of me at that moment. And if, if you had told him that, uh, that he had done this for me, that he had just done something really nice basically, I think that he would have been very surprised because he was going to the mikvah anyway. So he walked 10 yards with someone who he didn't know. And what's the big deal? So from his perspective, I think that he would be shocked, actually, that he had done anything that had, you know, been transformative for another person. And so the reason why I'm sharing this with you is that... It put me in touch with the, with the fact that, you see, anytime you discuss anything of religious importance or, or religion in general with, with any other person, basically, especially someone who may not be as familiar with these things as you are, you have to understand that you're discussing something that's very close to their soul. And so it's necessarily a moment of vulnerability for the other person necessarily a moment of vulnerability for the other person. And so if you take a moment to appreciate the fact that this is a moment where the other person is vulnerable, even though that this might be just meat and potatoes stuff for you, like, oh, how do you wash your hands? Okay, you wash your right hand first and then your left hand, you know what I mean? Like, but for another person who doesn't necessarily know, oh, you wash your right hand and then your left hand, I thought we're just washing hands. Oh, and, and you do it two times instead of eight times or, or three times. Like, that's a big moment for the other person. And you do it 20 times a day. So, of course, this is how you do it. So, all I'm trying to say is, is that, just to, to remind us that, that the things that are perhaps commonplace for, for, for you are very not commonplace for the other person. And even if it doesn't seem to be a monumental thing that you're imparting, if you do it with love and sensitivity, that's really important. And I I saw that just by this guy walking me to the mikvah, you know? So so we get to the mikvah, and there, it was really, I saw something really amazing there which was, it wasn't what we would call a modern mikveh, in that 
it wasn't architecturally new or beautiful or anything like that. It was, it was certainly clean and it was fine. There was, there was nothing wrong with it. But it wasn't what I would call n new or modern. And we walked into the little lobby there. And a lot of mikvahs now I've seen have turnstiles. That's how they are able to make sure that everyone pays who goes in. And so this chassid who I was walking with was in front of me in line. And there's a little crack in the wall. And I see... And this like blew my mind. He puts his finger in the crack and I notice that there's a fingerprint reader on it. <laughs> and so he, I guess, is a member and, and, and has paid. So he get, that, that's his, his calling card. So it reads his fingerprint and he's able to get into the mikvah. Isn't that amazing? And it was literally a crack in the wall. It wasn't like framed by a piece of metal you know, with all sorts of instructions and buttons. Nothing. It was just a crack in a brick wall with like this ID fingerprint reader. So that I thought was pretty cool. So I get into the mikveh and, um, you know, by the way, uh, I tell you just for the men anyway, some, some mikveh etiquette, which is that, that the, the way you do it is you, you get wet under the shower and then you kind of apply the soap outside the shower. Because otherwise, this way, you can rotate because there are a lot of people going. So you don't want to basically spend the whole time under the, the shower nozzle because that stops other people from getting ready. So, so that's all going on and everyone's rotating and everything like that. And I'm ready to go into the mikvah. And I know that this is a large enough mikvah that the, a lot of these places have a cold mikvah and a hot mikvah. And after my experience at the Arius mikvah, I was like, I can't. I'm going to die if I go into a cold mikvah again. You know, I can't, I can't do it. And, and by the way, one of my, my favorite teachings, I, I, I've forgotten the Rebbe who says this, but they say, he says, what's the difference between a cold mikvah and an avera? Like, an avera means a sin, like a mistake. Like, what's, uh, what's the difference? He says, by, uh, by a cold, by, by an avera, when you do something, you know, that's uh, not, not a, uh, recommended, not allowed by God. So, so you go like this. Ah, ooh. But by a cold mikvah you go, ooh, ah. <laughs> so it's sort of, sort of the opposite. Um, but I, I was determined to go into the, I, I, I wanted to go into the other one. So I, I, I see there's one pool that was like the closest one to the shower. So I walk up to that and I see an, an older chassid, like, getting out, and I, I really don't speak much Hebrew at all, but somehow the right word came to me in the moment, and I, I just pointed to the mikvah, and I said to him, I said, cham, cham means hot, and so he looks at me very seriously, and he says, cham ma'od ma'od, which means very, very hot. And then I was so happy with myself that I had actually said the right word. I went, Cham! And he looks at me very sharply and he says, Ma'od, Ma'od. <laughs> I mean, really hot. So I was like, okay. So I take a step in and it's like burning my feet. I mean, it's crazy. It takes me several minutes to get underwater. And I remember thinking this. This is not me describing the experience after the fact. This is what I was thinking while I was in it. I, I said to myself, this is what a tea bag feels like. <laughs> I'm a human tea bag. <laughs> so 
Um, so somehow I got under the water and I was determined to do it seven times to make up for my, my one and out at the Arismic, you know, so I, I somehow did that and I walked out. But I have to tell you, when I walked out, I felt like I had like nine shots of liquor, you know, like my, all my muscles were turned into jelly. So that was, it's actually a very good feeling. So leaving it was nice. And then I got dressed, and I, I told you guys several weeks ago, I don't know if you remember, but I had had my clothes stolen at the mikvah. <laughs> so I had I put on this black jacket as I was getting dressed, and I thought to myself, you know, I should double check, because really, here, everyone's got a black jacket. You know, you've got rows and rows of black jackets. So I, I'm going to, just I should double check that this is the right black jacket. And I looked down, and I saw that the one I had just put on went down to my knees. And I said, okay, this is not the right black jacket. So I put on someone's Becca shirt. So I put it back on, and then I found mine, and then I was out. So that was another experience. Uh, another experience is uh, we, we made a bar mitzvah for my son, Mendy, and, and my sister came in, and she didn't know we were where we were staying, and... We didn't tell her where we were staying, and she was just picking a spot, and we just picked a spot. We were across the street from each other. Now, Jerusalem is a big place. Can you imagine? We were several yards from each other, and, and I was on George Washington Street, and she was on Abraham Lincoln Street. <laughs> so, you know, in, in cities, you'll see that if you drive around and you pay attention, you'll see that they thematically name blocks of streets. You know what I mean? These are all trees and these are all states, whatever it is. So, so in Israel, you have Abraham Lincoln and George Washington right next to each other, and that's where we were. So that, that in itself was pretty amazing. Um, i tell you another experience. I, I went... Um, during the bar mitzvah, which was so beautiful, uh, I have this kind of this sitter, this prayer book that I pray out of that I've had for many, many years. And um, dur- somehow during the, the davening, because we were walking here, there, and all the rest, I put it down someplace, and then I couldn't find it. So I lost it. I looked around for it. I couldn't find it. And it had my, my name on it in Hebrew. And I was sad. I was like, you know, I've had this thing for really a long time. And it's gone. So after we, we had breakfast afterwards, and then I thought, okay, I'm going to go back now because the, the Kotel at this point will be, you know, it's not yet Mincha. It's too late for Shachris right now, the morning prayer. So now's probably a good time because there's no one going to be there. It'll be easy to try to find it. So I go back down and uh, I run into uh, a good friend. Just, just he's standing there and it just that in itself was amazing. And the person says to me that it's gone. It's gone. And then he says to me, talk to this guy. And this is the guy who takes care of all the books by the Kotel. And then he's asking me, how big is it? How thick is it? What color is it? What shade of what color? Because you've got every type of prayer book, you know, by there. And so I gave him the description. And then at the very end, when he hears all the description, he said to me, is your name Wax? (laughs) I said, no, Sax. He goes, yeah. 
So he goes, you know, like close enough, basically. And he goes into the tunnel and he comes back with it. And I had said to my friend, I said, you know, I knew I was going to get this back. Even before he looked for it, even before he came back with it, I said, I just want you to know, I know he's coming back with it. And the reason is because I left this sitter on an airplane. Um, and one year later, it was returned to me. And then, and so I said, it's got nine lives, so I know it's coming back. And, and it did come back. But then I realized that the one from the airplane was actually a different sitter. This was the one that I had bought while that one was missing. <laughs> so they both have a, a blessing attached to it. Um, and then I'll tell you something. I, I, I have a, a leather jacket that's sort of like my winter coat. I take it on me, with me uh, on trips. And it's one of these uh, soft leather jackets where if you kind of like bump into the wall, it rips. And um, I had actually done a, a speaking tour a few years ago in, in London. And I was staying at someone's house and I was locked out. And I actually, I had to break into their house. <laughs> so I didn't tell them that. But, um, and I had to climb over this wall. And so I was like standing on top of this wall. And then I had to jump down on the other side, you know to where their house was. And I jumped and I fell and I rolled on gravel on this like really like this soft leather jacket. And so the whole arm is completely pockmarked and eaten up by the, by the gravel, you know? So I got my sitter back, but I realized that I had left this jacket and the jacket was gone. And then someone was very nice and he said to me, you know, we're going to go and uh, I have a student and I'm going to send him by the hotel and he's going to look in the lost and found and everything like that and we'll see, if, uh, we'll see if your jacket's there. And then he gets back in touch with me and he says, he checked the lost and found and he, he looked everywhere, your, your jacket's gone. So I went the whole trip without a jacket and there were times when I needed it. And, you know, I was kind of, of I had kind of mixed feelings. Um about losing this jacket, like how I was supposed to relate to the fact that it was gone. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Because um, you have something called yush, which is um, kind of like giving up. And uh, generally speaking, if someone finds a lost object, it remains yours, even though it's in their possession, as long as you have hope of recovering it. But if you give up on recovering it, then you've essentially relinquished any claim to it, and then it can become the property of the other person, legally. So I'm thinking to myself, should I, there's someone who's walking around, this is what I thought anyway, with my jacket. And I thought, you know, who's ever walking around with my jacket it's cold and they don't have a jacket, so they need a jacket. And I'm thinking, you know, it's not in the best condition anyway. Like, I should probably be getting a new jacket just anyway. And then I thought to myself, so I, if that person's wearing it anyway, I want to make sure that it's kosher, basically, <laughs> that they should actually be able to really genuinely own it. So I should just give up on recovering it so that it can be completely theirs. And I had heard a story many years ago. 
this is how I heard it, in the name of the Berditchever Rebbe, which was that he had had this, the, the Kiddush cup, I, I, this is just how I remember the story, you have to check the details, I don't know if it's accurate or not, but that he had had the Kiddush cup of the Baal Shem Tov, and that it was his only possession that was really worth anything, and that he came home and he saw that there was a robber in the house, and the robber had stolen the cup, and he walked in right as the robber's leaving with it. So he's like chasing after the thief. So can you imagine like, like if you're the thief, you've just like broken into like the house of like one of the like holiest people ever and stolen this like, you know, like very special object and you're being chased by the Rebbe. So he finally, the Berdichever catches him and he says to him, he says, listen, I just want you to know it's a gift. So why was he running after him seemingly to get it back? But you realize the only reason why he was running after him was that the person shouldn't think that he's stolen it. That he shouldn't have this, this uh, wrongdoing on his soul of stealing, but, but rather that he should just know that it's a gift. So I'm thinking about this about my jacket, that really I want to make sure that who's ever walking around wearing my jacket, that it's a gift. But at the same time, I'm thinking, you know, I got my sitter back. Maybe I'll get my jacket back. Maybe I shouldn't give up on it because then maybe it's not mine anymore, you know? So I'm kind of going back and forth. Anyway, I, I made it a gift to the person. And as we were leaving, the last day, we went to the hotel. And, um, and this was special, you know? I thought, okay, maybe I'll check the lost and found. And by the way, you know, when you think of the lost and found, you think of something sort of formal, and especially since the entire world is going to the hotel, that it's probably a, it's, it's like a closet with like a lot of curtains in it and a lot of empty cardboard boxes. There's one cardboard box that has some talus and tefillin bags in it, and that's basically it. And, and there was a guy who looked like a 90-year-old Iraqi passed out on a big plastic chair, and that... I thought maybe he's running the lost and found, but I think he was just resting and he sort of waved me into the room. And so I walked in there, I looked around, there was nothing in there. And I thought, oh wow, this isn't really much of a lost and found, you know? And then I turned around and as I'm leaving on the other side, under three cardboard boxes, above one cardboard box, there's like a little thing sticking out. And I was like, what's that? And I pull on it a little bit more and a little bit more, and it's brown leather. I was like, it's my jacket! You know, and I pull it out. I couldn't believe it, so I had my jacket. Now, bless you. Now, listen to this. This is the part that kind of... So I was so happy to have it back, but this is the part that really moved me, you know? Someone said, when I said, look, I got my jacket. So it's got kind of a fancy uh, kind of designer label on it. And someone says, uh, you know, it's amazing that they didn't steal it. You know, because it's got this label on it. And then someone overhears. There's a whole like, like section of Chabad guys who put on tefillin on people at the very beginning, at the right where the Kotel starts. He overhears this person saying that, and he starts yelling at him. He says, how dare you? How dare you imply that a Jew would steal? That one Jew would steal from another's... How dare you say such a thing? And especially at the Kotel. How could you even imagine that someone would take something that wasn't theirs? 
And it was, it was beautiful. It was a beautiful moment. You know, there's a story, I think it's told about the Sfasemis, I'm not sure. But, but he had done something, and I forgot who was yelling at him. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, but it was, these are all, whoever it was, these were like some of the greatest Rebbes. And he's yelling at him, and the person who's being yelled at is with a, a companion, and the companion knows that, that, that he's not guilty of what he's being yelled at for. Like, he knows for sure that, that why this guy is yelling at him. He didn't do it. And then after he finishes yelling at him, the companion says to the one who was just yelled at, like, why didn't you defend yourself? Why didn't you say that you didn't do it? Because we both know you didn't do it. And he said, because to receive Musser, rebuke from such a great person is so sweet. <laughs> like, like it was like, how could I deprive myself <laughs> the ability to hear like these like words from someone so great, you know? So that's that's a really good way to go through life. I I would I highly recommend that. <laughs> you know? It's just you know, I'll tell you something. Reb Shlomo, I think this is in Holy Brother, if I'm not mistaken. Reb Shlomo was walking down the street. He was in Yerushalayim and a, uh, an older religious man. You ready for this? Crazy story. Came up to him and spit in his face and accused him of whatever he accused him of. And Shlomo was surrounded by some of his Hasidim. And... And they heard him say afterwards, what was, what was Reb Shlomo's reaction to that? He said to the, to the people there, look how much he loves Hashem. <laughs> Meaning that, you know, talking about loving rebuke, you know, seeing the good in others, even at a moment that could be quite humiliating. It's a very exalted level. I know, I heard about the Echoz of Lublin, the seer of Lublin, that, um, that it was part of his daily Seder, part of his daily uh, Torah kind of path to read uh, Sefer Devarim every day, or at least parts of Sefer Devarim, uh, which is Moshe's farewell address to the Jewish people, which contains a lot of rebuke in it. Because he said, like, what could be better than receiving rebuke from Moshe Rabbeinu himself every single day? Like, that, that's the ideal. I heard in the name of Reb Noach Weinberg, the, the founder of Eish uh, Olav that um, he said that if you, if, if you were to drop your wallet, right, and someone were to pick up your wallet and hand it to you and say to you, you dropped your wallet. Would you say, why are you criticizing me? <laughs> Someone's handing you your wallet back and says, you dropped your wallet. Why are you criticizing me? Like, who would say that? You would say, thank you so much. I mean, but there are people who, who hear, like, like when, if someone actually is rebuking you and trying to put you on a better path, they're, what are they doing? They're, they're, they're giving you better than your wallet back. They're giving you a piece of your soul back. Right? So, so we, we need good ears.
We need good ears. It doesn't mean that we should walk around yelling at each other. Obviously not. And everything always has to be done with the utmost kindness. You know, it says in the Talmud, and this is going back approximately 2,000 years now, that we've lost the ability to rebuke each other, to correct each other, to give tochacha is the Hebrew word. That we've lost the ability. This They were saying that 2,000 years ago, that we've lost the ability. Because in order to be able to do it, it has to come from a place of real love for the other person, genuine love. Then, that's probably the easier part, oddly enough. Then the person who's listening has to know that you actually love them. And that you're only saying it because you love them. And then those two things have to align. Right? So that's, that's hard. Because, you know... A lot of times when people try to, you know, mend the ways of another person, it's just some subtle form of some superiority trip. Just some form of way of saying, I'm better than you. You know? And that's poison. That's poison. You know, I once heard, I once heard uh, someone say, if you want to give someone else a piece of your mind, Think about it five times first, and then don't do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> because it's almost guaranteed that it's never going to come out right. It's almost a guarantee. Okay, there are rare instances, but you really, the gates really have to be open. Um, so, I said to you that I want to talk about... Uh, the search for truth, and um, and I just want to just get back to this idea, and then maybe we'll start to wrap it up. <clears throat> you see, reality is very deep, and there's a million ways to interpret it. But I believe with all of my heart that there's such a thing as truth. That there is a concrete notion of truth. And the reason why I really feel as though there's a concrete notion of truth in this world, even though um, even though that that idea is very scary to people, especially in a Western liberal type of society, that there could be a, 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 an ultimate concept of truth. Um, but, but I believe it. And, and, and the reason why I believe it is because if you look at the natural world, everything, we live in an exceedingly structured universe. Exceedingly structured. Meaning to say you've got hundreds of billions of galaxies with 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 populated by, by, by planets and, 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 and stars that are way bigger than Earth. How could it be that the heavens can be filled with so many, trillions, trillions of heavenly bodies and they all have an exact orbital pattern and they don't bump into each other? And if they do occasionally bump into each other, like asteroids and things like that, somehow they don't throw off the whole system should be a domino effect. Everything should crash into each other. How could it be that it's all perfectly arranged? 
How could it be if you look at the DNA of a person? That if you have one more X chromosome or one more Y chromosome, the entire person changes, transforms. It's so exact. If you look at the formula for air, it's so exactly precise. A little bit more oxygen. It says that, that, that you know, you need oxygen for a flame. They say if there's too much oxygen, if there's a little more oxygen, if you lit a match, it would cause a conflagration. There's a huge fire every time you'd even light a match. And if you had a little less oxygen, everyone in the world would suffocate. Can you imagine how perfectly balanced it is? And you go down to the subatomic level. Ridiculously, ridiculously exact. Ridiculously exact. So how can you say with any... with any certainty, with any, with any credibility that everything is random, when you see how exceedingly structured the universe is. Interpersonal behavior is very mysterious. Why did you do that? Why didn't you do that? Why did you say that? Why didn't you say that? That's mysterious. And so we do walk around with tons of question marks all the time. But if you project your level of like mysteriousness about interpersonal behavior and you say, well, that seems random, therefore the whole universe is random, I would say that that would be an extrapolation that would be incorrect. Because you see that the world is incredibly structured and not random. Okay, so people are mysterious, I get that. But the world itself, the universe itself is very structured. And so that says to me that there is an overarching truth that exists. And that that truth is not just in the physical realm, but that truth actually is in the moral realm as well. And that there are certain interpersonal principles that are also true. And that are also weaved into the fabric of the universe. Because we say from our mystical standpoint that God created the world out of the Torah. And that just like the Torah is filled with all sorts of ethical principles, they've been weaved into the nature of reality in this physical universe as well. And so, and so one can approach reality and understanding the world, I think, from two primary different paths, in, in my simple understanding. One is to look at all of the little kind of clues that exist in this world, right? And then try to derive something greater, an ultimate truth, from all the different clues, right? And that can get very, very confusing because sometimes the scientific study is based on the latest science and points in one direction and seems to even point in a direction that says that something else is entirely true. And then a few years later, that scientific method gets updated or discredited. And then you realize, wow, I've really staked quite a bit on this archaeological piece of evidence. But now this new archaeological piece of evidence has just been discovered. You know, I remember when I was asking my, um, my wife's uh, parents for a blessing to, 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 to marry my wife. I, I said to them, I said, you know, I've met other women that I would trust my life with, but Judy is the first person that I've met that I trust my soul with, right? 
And it was an emotional moment. And it's sort of like, I understand there's this new archaeological study or this new scientific study, right? But do I really want to trust my soul with whatever the quote-unquote latest science points to? I, 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 don't, I don't know that I do, necessarily. So that's, that's the approach from when we look at little bits and pieces and try to extrapolate an ultimate truth based on little bits and pieces. But I think that there's a stronger way, which is that imagine you go to a crime scene and you see like a follicle of, a follicle of something, like, a, like let's say it's a, like a, a crumb from a snack. And you say, well, wait a second. There is someone who has a motive to have done this crime and we know that he liked this snack. So maybe we can connect that this is evidence that that person actually did it. Maybe, maybe not. It's possible, right? But what if three feet from there is a written, signed confession from someone? Like, what's, what's, what's the better piece of evidence? This little crumb from a stack that maybe someone with a motive may or may not have left there? Or the signed confession of the person who did it himself? I mean, there's no comparison, right? So, so that to me is the other approach. In other words, you see, you have all sorts of things, but, but I have a, 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 a much larger question, which is, how did the universe get here to begin with? God, God literally created something out of nothing. He created something out of nothing. It's like the one who created this entire huge, vast universe, something out of nothing, can do absolutely anything. So if you have a question about the latest science over here, or you have a question about that, you know what, you're going to have questions no matter what. If you decide to take the most rational, grounded, scientific path, you're still going to have questions. Every single approach to life and understanding the universality of everything is going to be left with questions. There is no path that doesn't conclude with having outstanding questions. It doesn't exist. So I want to start from the standpoint of the one who created the entire universe because that to me is the ultimate truth. See, you have something which is in, 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 in mystery writing, we call it a red herring. So what's a red herring? See, I can't write a mystery where it's sort of like, ha, there's, there's a crime that's been committed. I think it's Mr. Smith. You know what? It's Mr. Smith. See, that's not a good novel, because that novel is about five pages long. <laughs> it doesn't work. So you need what you call red herrings. So it's a red herring. Ah, I think it's Mr. Jones. So I spend 30 pages investigating Mr. Jones. It's not Mr. Jones. You know why it's not Mr. Jones? Because it's Mrs. Jones. <laughs> and then you find out later on that, you know what? There is no Mrs. Jones. Mr. Jones dresses in drag. That's the Mr. Jones. And that's the big twist. And it's like, now you're up to page 100, right? Now I got to get to page 200, 220, when I finally find out it's Mr. Smith. Okay, so I need red herrings along the way. 
All right, so these are false leads. So, so those who want to say, okay, so it, it has to be that all life really started with an amoeba. Okay, so let's just say all life started with an amoeba and, and not with God fully forming man and woman outright. To me, the one who can create something out of nothing, it's just as easy for God to create a human being outright than it is to start with an amoeba and to bring him up into man and woman. I mean, they're both the same. It doesn't matter. You know, so if it's one, it's fine, it's one. If it's the other, fine, it's the other. I have no horse in this race, you know what I mean? Because the, the one who brought creation into being, it's the same one either way. So you have a lot of society focused on how did God create man? But that ultimately, I think, is a red herring, how God did it. It's certainly worthy of, of investigating, and why not? Let's know it. The question is, why did he create human beings? Why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? That's what I want to know. I don't want a science textbook. If you give it to me, it's good. It's valuable. It's also a revelation of godliness. But I want to know why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? And so you can track everything back. Let's say we track everything back to the first particle of existence. Let's say we can actually do that, right? But where did that particle, where did the fabric of time and space come from? Like, let's say you can trace it back to an amoeba. Let's say you can trace it back to a fossil in, in, in Africa. Whatever it is. Let's say you've got the fossil of the first human sapien. Let's say you've got it, and it's proof. There it is. Okay, who made the fossil? Who made the ground that it was buried in? Who made time and space that it was made out of? It's like, okay, you want to say you're starting with point A? That, that's not point A. Point A is the nothingness that the something came out of, and that's God. So this is the second approach then. Not starting with little clues and breadcrumbs and all the rest and trying to extrapolate to a higher reality. The second approach is starting with the fact that there's a God who created existence and that everything stems from that God. And that to me is the more intuitive approach and the more, I think, intellectual approach. You see, there's a very interesting passage where Moshe Rabbeinu confronts Paro. And remember who Paro is? Pharaoh, right? He's one of the kings of Egypt that we're still talking about. So every kid all around the world is learning about ancient Egyptian civilization. Till today, they built one of the greatest, most masterful empires ever. We're still blown away by it. So this is one of the, the masters, right, of civilization. Paro says to Moshe, Hashem, I don't know who this Hashem is, right? So you can't say Paro wasn't a smart guy. <laughs> Paro was an exceedingly smart guy. But he didn't know this one thing. And not knowing this one thing, then what did he know ultimately? See, it says it all goes back to this one Pasuk. We say, Reishis Hachma Yiras Hashem. The beginning of all knowledge is the awareness of God. The beginning of all knowledge is the awareness of God. And so if you know this one thing, 
that there is a God who created the entire world and that all of creation flows from him, then at least you're grounded in reality. And I think that's where the search for truth becomes. And then you can ask yourself lots of really good questions. Is God good? We say certainly yes. Is God still involved in our lives? Is God still involved in this world? We say certainly yes. You know, can I have a relationship with God? We say yes, but, but once you begin with this notion of God, then there are lots of questions you can ask. The investigations don't end, right? But at least you're dealing from a standpoint of bedrock. Uh, it, did God actually communicate to us his will? Right? We say yes, that's the Torah. But all of these questions, now I'm dealing with, with the bedrock of reality. Now I'm grounded in truth. And the investigation doesn't end. This is not to shortchange an investigation. This is not to derail questions. But at least let's talk about reality from its most real bedrock state, the existence of God. And then, you know, whatever we come up with, we come up with. And thank God we have unbelievable sages and unbelievable prophets who have explained it to us, and God himself who has explained it to us. So Shem should bless us that that we should never, ever stop searching for the truth, but that we should also allow ourselves to travel on the roads that make the most sense and not to be confused by just how, how, how complicated all the different sensory bombardment of this world can be. And it's only getting more and more, not less, more and more. And um, I'll just end with how I began, just by just, just, just mentioning this trip to Israel. You know, when events in your life happen that, 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 like opening up the, the Chumash as the plane landed that said, look how I've brought you close to me with eagle's wings, you know? You know, when you have moments like that in your life, then you're connecting on a different level. It's, you're, you're experiencing God. You're experiencing God. And I think that that's ultimately just the greatest path because our intellect is, is certainly very prized and valuable and, and good for a lot of things. But ultimately, the soul experiences reality on a deeper way. And God is making himself available at all times. Hashem should just bless us that we should feel that sense of closeness always and know that we're always in his hands. Yeah.